welcome to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast. Today, we're chatting with Dorothy Callens, the award-winning magazine editor and founding editor of Sever and Metropolitan Home Magazine, prolific author, the first woman to be named Adweek's Editor of the Year, and honored member of the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who in Food and Beverage. Dorothy adds her newly released book, The Kitchen Whispers, Cooking with the Wisdom of Our Friends, to her list of numerous publications and books. I am honored to welcome Dorothy to the podcast. Hi, Dorothy. Hi, Liren. I am so happy to meet you. And I always begin by asking, what's the first thing that you remember cooking and about how old were you? You know, it was interesting when I was writing this book, I took myself back to my mother's kitchen and I tried to remember and I did, I said in the book, I can't remember at four years old, her arms guiding me around a bowl of, of Toll House cookies, chocolate chip cookies made from a mix, you know, probably from the recipe on the back of the package of the chips. Mm-hmm. I can't remember cooking with my mother, which is a very strange thing to say. So I don't have an easy answer to that. I know I made brownies. I know I made chocolate chip cookies, but I don't, I don't have that memory. Probably after 10 years of analysis, I could come back and tell you. <laughs> well, I, that's okay, because I feel like you more than make up for it with your so many memories that you share in your book. Um, but before we get on that, I did want to touch on Sever for a moment. Uh, I just remember how it was definitely a surprise when the print publication went away and the food community was really mourning that. But what I loved about the magazine was how that it reconnected food with its origins. Right. And I would love to know what was your inspiration to start that at Sever when I feel like magazines really weren't doing that at the time. Well, that was that was the great thing because I and my co-founders, Coleman Anders and Christopher Hersheimer, all felt we shared this idea that food comes from somewhere. It comes from a place, from a culture, from a family, from the ingredients that are local, from old ideas. It comes from someplace. It's not deracinated. And we we felt that there was a a kind of a race to the bottom in the food. This was, remember, in the 90s. And there was not a lot, a a high price put on authenticity. It was really um, six ways to do pork chops or Mm -hmm. low-fat cassoulet, how to make it easier, faster, don't mess. And our feeling was, no, 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 no. What it really is, is... Um, a retracing of the roots and getting at why people treated a certain thing a certain way. I I tell in the book a story about Christopher going, I was then editor of Metropolitan Home, a design and architecture magazine, but we did a lot of food. And Christopher, who was the food editor of Met Home, went to Norway to learn about how to make gravlocks. And she came back and told us all about how they would salt and cure the the fish, the fillets of salmon, and then wrap them in newspaper and bury them in the backyard for the Norwegian winter. And we just got so enraptured with that idea. And then we all wanted to do it. (laughs) 
examine that way. And so we did, which was a very um, time consuming and <laughs> intensive process in its own way. And then we used it in a story that we did called Lamb on the Run, which was how to give a dinner party in the middle of the week, which is the stupidest idea we've ever came up <laughs> with because, you, you know, we're all too nutty to do that, too busy to do that. But um, when that article was published, uh, the, uh, the recipe for making your own Gravlax at home was about two inches square on the page. And there was no place to put that whole story about the origins, the method, the feeling you had about treating those salmon fillets that way. And it, for me, that was a, a, a moment when I thought, wait a minute, there is no food magazine that tells stories like that. And we started talking about it and, and happily we, formed a new company that w was started by the Chris Meir, the man who had run magazines at Time Inc. for 30 years, and he wanted to do very intensely targeted magazines, and this was our idea to, to do it. So so that's that was the impulse. I'm so glad you did. I feel like those stories are what excites people to actually make the food so yes. that when you do see just the quick little recipe, it's easy to just keep flipping <laughs> when right. you when you don't know the context. And I think the other thing, too, is the photography, because you would shoot a lot on location and right. that just elevated um, the ideas behind the recipe. Do you have well, it connected a, you to the place? Yes. Yes. Do you have a memorable or favorite shoot? Well, I, the, the favorite shoots that I got, see, I didn't get to go on all those shoots. Oh. I was there, you know, being the mama and making mm -hmm. the magazine and, and, and people were all, you know, literally went all over the world, writers and photographers um, following a story. And, uh, but a couple of times I did get to go on, um, we did a special shoot on Burgundy, which is, and in the region of France where I just feel very, very connected. And we, Coleman and Christopher and I went out and fortunately by that time she had become a photographer. Coleman was a writer, I was a writer. We, we were able to pretty much produce that magazine ourselves. And we just, um, we invent, one of the things about Sever was that we revered grandmothers because our feeling, or grandfathers, where our feeling was food comes from somewhere and it comes from a place and it comes from a person and it's not whizzy and, and it's not, it's not what restaurant chefs are dreaming of, at least not what we can do at home. It's not realistic. It's silly to, to think that that we can do what what restaurant cooks and chefs can achieve. So we our MO was always to try to find a grandmother. And we did. We found a French uh, grandmother of a woman who Coleman knew in Los Angeles. And we went to her house in Burgundy and she made for us um, a coco vin, a chicken and wine sauce, the way they did it in the old days, which was to say you took a very old bird, a rooster, 
and you use the blood of that bird in the sauce as well as cocoa and or or chocolate Mm -hmm. and she did it that way and it was pretty extraordinary and then another thing that she did though i said how is your salad dressing so extraordinary this was a vinaigrette it was just a green salad but it was just somehow it had a texture and it coated the leaves so beautifully and she went in the kitchen and came back with a little box called feku which is potato starch and she told me showed me she took she brought her tea kettle in to the dining table and told me how she did a couple of tablespoons of potato starch a pour of hot water beat it up and it it kind of made a thickener into which she added her oil and vinegar so it would emulsify it and that was and that was what the texture that's what became the texture of that extraordinary salad dressing and uh, so it was things like that that we found that were so worthy worthy of being passed on to our readers oh oh i love that story so much what a treat to be able to enjoy that and and to learn because grandmothers truly are the best and I, i do believe that if we could all find a grandmother to learn from then yes it's the best way to learn um did you always know that you wanted to write or you know, be involved with food in any way? No, <laughs> I, I didn't really know. I was I was a philosophy major in college and languages and lived in France and I, I, I didn't know. But when I became a magazine editor, I what interested in what interested me most was the idea of explaining to readers the questions I just knew they had answer. I felt it was our duty to, um, to get to the heart of something and not be blithe and, oh, of course you do this and not be throwaway. So I felt a huge responsibility to readers. And I kind of came into food that way by discovering it for myself and then wanting to share with readers the discoveries that I made and that our wonderful writers made um, that that it was, it was the opposite of pretension. Mm -hmm. Although we did travel the world. Um, We, we found authenticity where, wherever we went, that's what, what our byword was. Right. And you delivered it just so approachably. Um, So the kitchen whispers, Congratulations, first of all. I've really been enjoying it. I've been reading oh, it this so week. Nice to know. It's, no, it's wonderful. And it's the kind of food writing. It's it's beautifully written. I just love that kind of storytelling. Um, I'm a huge fan of the stories behind food. That's part of the reason why I started blogging um, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Um, back really? when, uh-huh. Yeah, back when people actually wrote stories about their food. Now it's very different. Um, but you have a lifetime of anecdotes and it's like listening to a good friend over dinner. So how did this project come about? Well, this project came about because I realized that I had people talking in my head. And, <laughs> and of course, they couldn't. Uh, our publishers said, no, no, you can't use listening to the voices in your head because you're going to sound like a crazy person. <laughs> but I really knew that, for example, when I was washing greens in the sink, I heard a French grandmother I knew reminding me that you have to wash it three times. And then I, I remember when I, when I wash a pot, 
I remember that um, a wonderful cook, chef, friend of mine always says, you have to cook, you have to clean the pot, the back of it, because mm. that shows a respect for your, for your kitchen utensils. And I, so things that people, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to cook with wonderful people who just animate my life, even if I'm standing alone. And I thought, well, I can't be the only person who's having these thoughts. And perhaps if I wrote about what I was thinking, that other people would connect with their own memories. And that was really the impulse. Well, you were effective at it because it brought back a lot of memories for me. Oh, good. Um, you write about shakshuka, for example. You said, um, I wrote it down, dishes as iconic as these evoke a rich chorus of voices, but you always remember your first. So I love how those voices and the, those memories inform your cooking. And can you explain to people what you mean about, you know, you always remember your first and then just all the other voices that come along and how it well, informs I, your cooking? You brought up the the uh, dish of shakshuka, which is, is uh, known right now as an Israeli breakfast um, specialty, but of course it probably came from North Africa because it has peppers and 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 um, wonderful hot spices. But I, I never knew, I had never had shakshuka. And I, I just had heard, I knew about it. I didn't, this was way before I went to Israel and became, you know, really knew about it. And so I, I was at um, the house of Joan Nathan, who is uh, a renowned uh, cookbook author and herself has written definitive books on the cuisine of Israel at home and the and Jewish cooking. And, and, uh, and I just saw her make this thing and it was so simple what she did. I mean, she opened cans of whole tomatoes. She had some paper peppers and onions that she had roasted in the oven when she just had thrown them in it while we were talking I guess we were having breakfast coffee or something and then she took the biggest frying pan that she had and put the canned tomatoes the roasted peppers and onions and then broke six or eight eggs into them into that pan and put the pan in the oven and that was it and then after that, I just like when you hear a word for the first time, you hear it again very often because yes. <laughs> you know what the definition of it is. And so every time I had it after that, it was always different. But it was it then you become then you become the owner of it after you see a dish that way. So I saw it made in Israel and I saw it made in, I, I, I've seen it in, in lots of different places. And it just, and I wouldn't even think twice about making that now, but I would think about the people as I'm breaking those eggs into the tomatoes and the peppers and the onions. Um, I would think about all the places that I've enjoyed it and, and learned from people doing it. And I just make your own version later on you make your own version and that's i think um there's a tyranny of recipes i think uh 
right now and I'm, I've certainly done many, many cookbooks and believe in cookbooks and believe in good ones. But I just think that people are maybe a little too cowed by them and that they should trust their memories more. Oh, gosh, I totally agree with that. <laughs> because, you know, as you write in your book, you, you're you recalling all these little flavor gems, you know, over the years. And it's, it's so cool. And you've rubbed, rubbed elbows with so many greats in the food world, Marcella Hazan and Danny Meyer. But who are the greats in your personal life that that influence you? Well, I write about Christopher, who I mentioned, who mm -hmm. is 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 probably the most natural cook I, I know. And there's nothing she touches that doesn't turn out wonderfully. And she has a restaurant now in oh. um, in Milford, New Jersey, in a, in a in a with her part with her business partner Melissa Hamilton, who also worked at Savour with us, and. Mm -hmm she the two of them are are such natural cooks and they're such joyful uh celebratory cooks they 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 let everything looks beautiful but it never looks worried you mm -hmm. know sometimes you go to a restaurant and they they've tortured the anchovies so it curls <laughs> around the cover and it, you know and this is this is food that relaxes on the plate and is very welcoming. And I guess that's what that's the style that I'm that I'm drawn to. But I've I've been so lucky to the way I produce cookbooks, um, for example, with Michael Anthony, who's the chef, the executive chef at Gramercy Tavern. We've done two books. We did the Gramercy Tavern book and we did Vias for Vegetables, because he's a vegetable head. He just loves <laughs> He never met a vegetable he didn't love. <laughs> and uh, the, the vegetable, so the Gramercy book we we produced in Gramercy Tavern and the food would be cooked in there. But we didn't do everything that was on the menu because it's way too stratospheric for, for home cooks to try to replicate. And rather than say... You have to do this. I mean, the way they the way they find their fish and they choose their vegetables and they make their pastas by from scratch. I wouldn't ask a home cook to do that. So we interpreted that food for, and it's a very personal process when I work with chefs, so that I get to what their ideas are and what their impulse is. And then when we did Vias for Vegetables, we did it in my kitchen at home. Oh, wow. We, we, Mike was behind the stove and the photographer was right next to me and the recipe editor was right next to her. And then the art director was right there. And it, it, it's a little tight circle of people who are, who are worrying through a problem. So it, it, it becomes, the, the end result, the, the the food and the recipes are very cookable because we've cooked them right there. I, I imagine it's so hard to distill all the techniques that the chef uses into something that's manageable for a home cook. That's kind of my job. My job is the translator to say, no, no, we can't ask a, a home cook to do that. We'll have to do it a different way. Hmm. You know, we can't, we have to do it it has to be um, fun and life-giving. It can't be torture. You know, there was a time that we were all so 
worried about replicating every single thing in every cookbook. And it's just not like that. I think it's more important for a cookbook to give the spirit of a dish mm -hmm. and for you to cook in that spirit than for you to try to get every single thing right. And, you know, there are home, you know, as a home cook, I'm not going to try to do the things that they do so beautifully, the sauces and right. the ears and the pan glazes. And I'm, there's certainly home cooks who do that, but that's not me. So it just has to be opened up and made more accessible. And that's kind of my approach. Yeah. A little more realistic. I think yeah. you, also, you also wrote somewhere like recipes are the shorthand version of the journey. And I think that's so true. But I also love the journey and I love learning about that. And I know in the blogging world, there's been a lot of discussion back and forth. Do you share the journey? Do you not share the journey? People want to just skip to the recipe. You get nasty comments from people who don't want to hear the novel behind the story. That's interesting. So that, that you all talk among yourselves about how to best serve your your listeners by mm -hmm. you know do, do we just cut to the chase but then then you where's the romance exactly and what makes me different from you where yeah. we can cook the exact same thing we can bake the same cake but without our personal story and perspective and experience it's just gone <laughs> it's, it's just food <laughs> yeah yeah and it's you know i mean it's People will eat to fuel their bodies, but for me, it's it's a it's to fuel a passion. So <laughs> that's true. Can I ask you what you love to cook most? Oh gosh, um, well, I grew up in a Filipino household, yes. so those recipes are the dearest to me. Um, I do share some of that on my site. I cook everything, but uh -huh. those are the ones typically that people are most interested in. Sure. And I think it's because I have so many memories tied to each recipe and i feel like there's so much it's to explain story. it's the stories around yeah yes yeah. and it's so sad because everything's so driven by seo now nobody is really searching for you know some of the things that you might want to cook and share with your audience whoever they are and everyone's just driven by by that bottom line and trying to find what people are finding or yeah, looking for I can only hope that the pendulum will swing back because, Me too. because it's just not fulfilling. I mean, I have a, I have a son who I write about in, in, my, in my, and I have a, in my, I'm sitting right now in my office and you can't see it because all this stuff is, but I have hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of cookbooks. Mm -hmm. He will go in to my computer and get a recipe, download a recipe from, <laughs> you know, who knows where. And I say, Lincoln, how do you know if it's any good? How do you know, you know, and he'll go in and he'll make that. And I said, you know, isn't it helpful to read a little bit about the background of that dish and where it came from? And no, he's just not interested in it. And I hope, you know, gradually, he did say the other night, you know, mom, we still are interested in the stories. Oh, good. So that I'm gives me hope. <laughs> Well, I will say that gives me hope because my, my daughter, actually, she's the one who just loves to just skip ahead and doesn't yeah. want to read. No one wants to read it, mom. And I'm like, one yeah. day you will, I hope. That's right. That's right. We can only hope there's a phase <laughs> that they're going through. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it's uh, it'll cycle through. Yeah. You're, you wrote about your childhood food memories, and that brought back a lot for me. Like you talk about opening your fridge and seeing bologna in the fridge, and right. and then you talk about Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, which was right. my favorite. <laughs> it used to be my favorite, too. <laughs> I just loved like when you get those little extra lumps. Oh, I do, too. It was so, so But I, you know, I opened a can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup when I was writing that. Mm. And it's not the same. Oh, no. Have they changed it? I think seriously, they've changed it. Mm. I it just it, the the there there were little tiny bits, mm. squid like bits of, <laughs> of, of um, mushrooms in there. And it just didn't have the same texture didn't have the feeling at any rate that that's maybe we remember things differently too because it was such a it was so exciting when we were kids to be able to have cream mushroom soup yeah i agree yeah i always wonder if if it's us that have changed or if it's the food that has changed i'll never know (laughs) but yeah i think in that case it it, i think the food has changed Mm-hmm. I do. I think yeah. they they figured out other ways, maybe more productive ways for them to make things, but they're not less fla- they're less flavorful. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I'm really impressed with your capacity to remember and share vivid details. Do you journal? No, I don't. Really? Wow. But I've what happened was I ha- I've saved all my papers and notes and letters. And I found, for example, letters from my mother that I never remember getting, oh. but, but it, but somehow when I needed it, it just popped up to the top of these boxes I had. So I don't journal, but I've been, I've been writing yeah. and editing for a very long time. So I've been thinking about this, this stuff. That's amazing. That's really impressive. Um, I just have to ask really quickly, what was it like cooking with Marcella? Because you describe her as having the rigor well, of a scientist and the wisdom of a Nona. <laughs> you do not cook with Marcella. You you could help her. You could help. Oh. <laughs> but you, she has a running monologue. She had. She's very much missed. She she just talked. She talked constantly. She was a teacher. She had two doctorate degrees. She was so smart. And she just talked about the ingredients and the way it should be and the way it, the way things, things should be treated. That example of only salting the water, um, just as it boils before you put the pasta in, I think to keep the flavor of the salt alive in the water. And she, she just had her ways of doing things and she would show you and tell you, but she was a born teacher Mm. and she, um, she had very strict things she hated. There were things <laughs> that she did could not abide. She didn't like the fact that people, that American chefs didn't cook vegetables well enough. She would say, okay, well, you show me the plate and I'll take a picture of it and then you bring me something to eat. Oh, that's so funny. Maybe that's why a lot of Americans have a hard time with vegetables in general. Yeah. Because chefs only like them to look so pretty, those string meats mm-hmm. on a plate, as if they've just been doused one time and they're very crisp and they're very green. They photograph well. They make mm-hmm. good Instagram pictures. True. <laughs> but maybe the flavor doesn't come out as, as well. Maybe. Um, so you've had a lot of kitchen whispers in your life. And I, I believe you kind of 
talk about how you have become a kitchen whisperer for your stepdaughter, for your family. Um, You have so many lessons to pass on. Do you think that she's going to be remembering those in her head as she cooks later on in her life? I think she is. I think she, it's not to say she, people, kids don't fight the things you tell them as you know <laughs> with your daughter. I mean, they, it, it takes a while, but I think, I mean, basically what I'm trying to say to Sandrine is own it, keep it in. When you do something that you really like, remember that thing and do it in, in the sort of the same way, because that's how you build up a background. I, I she, I think, having watched a lot of good cooks in our kitchen as she grew up, I think she just thought that people go in there and just automatically do it and they don't understand. She doesn't understand. And I tried to say to her by writing this in the book that people are cooking in their head as they cook. The best chefs, you know, are always two or three steps ahead of themselves. And they're all saying, where am I going with that? And I'm going to put this in the thin and then I have to saute that, you know, and they're, they're running the the movie in their head Mm -hmm. and you have to pay attention. There's no such thing as going in and throwing something together. True. True. Even from starting from washing those greens. Yeah. The basic of the basic (laughs) of the basic. You just, you know, you just have to, be mindful, I think. And that's where you get the most joy out of it. Not by following meticulously some little recipe and putting out the mise en place and every single thing measured out. I I think that robs it of its joyful nature. Well, your book has been such a joy. Thank you for spending time with me today. Before I let you go, I have just a few closing questions that are really quick and fun, if you don't mind. Sure. What's something that you make when you're too tired to cook, like an emergency go-to meal? Toast with with, with homemade jam if I have it. Oh, have you made homemade jam this yeah, summer? Yeah, I, I made. Oh, yeah, I made strawberry jam this summer, and we just finished making um, cucumber pickles, sweet and sour pickles, and mm-hmm. um, beautiful red red pepper relish, which I love. I love to have that. But yeah, to- toast and. If no toast, potato chips. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, but I think probably anything with eggs is the is the go-to when there's n- nothing else in the house. And, I, you know, make a quick frittata with almost anything that's in the refrigerator and run it under the broiler. Quick and easy. Quick and clean, easy. Out the, quick out, clean out the fridge while you're at it. But, What's one recipe that you treasure the most? Wow, that's so hard to say. I think I would go into something that I would make as a little girl, I mean, a young, young woman, um, coco vin or something like that, where, where there's a lot of rich flavor and sauce and you can put it over something like rice or even mashed potatoes or noodles or something like that. That's, I guess, I would like to have. I wish somebody were making that for me for dinner tonight, <laughs> Maybe you should put it out there in the universe. Someone will make it for you. <laughs> that does sound good. Are you a messy cook or a neat cook? I'm I, uh, I'm not the kind of person who puts things back into the refrigerator the minute they use them. No, I just have it all out there. And I laugh at myself because I don't find 
I, you know, I, I am not a mise en place kind of cook. I don't put bring all my ingredients out and measure them out. As I, I don't do that. I don't enjoy that. That doesn't. That's too much like chemistry. So <laughs> I'd, rather, I'd rather just go foraging for what I need. And of course, that often has its downside, which is that you don't have one of the things you need. We're very similar. <laughs> What's a good kitchen tip or a cooking tip or any anything easy kick to, to share? Uh, tip. Mm, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I think the thing is to lighten up. Mm. I think the thing is to not worry about just to. I fresh vegetables. If you can find fresh vegetables and you can find them easier than I can, <laughs> um, you always have something to have to eat. Yeah, very good point. Okay, and then every Friday I try to share five little things, something that made me smile during the week. Is there anything that made you smile this week? Oh, let's see, what made me smile this week? Well. Our super, we, you know, we live in a high-rise building. We have a, a live-in superintendent, and he's a great fisherman. And last night he brought me uh, a whole a whole flounder. Oh my gosh! And I had never really, I obviously cooked lots of fillets, but I'd never dealt with a whole flounder. And I remembered a cookbook that I did many years ago where the chef told, told me how to, I said, you have to tell me how to do, how to take out the backbone so I can stuff the whole fish. Mm -hmm. And I found that and, and, and we did that last night, Roger and I, we cut, we cut, basically you cut a line down the fish and two edges, you cut two edges, like you're making um, a capital I with two uh -huh. on them and then flip it back. And I had some corn that was left over from corn on the cob and some tomato and whatever. And I, and I sauteed up some, uh, the left, the butt end of some bread and some olive oil. And so made, I made basically a, a stuffed fish. That sounds incredible. And it Did was you so roast it after. And then I put it in, um, about a 400 degree oven for 20 minutes or so. It was unbelievably good. It was so good that I, I can't even believe it. I'm so happy. And I have enough for dinner tonight. <laughs> You're so lucky. What a nice super. <laughs> no, that's a great thing to get on the good side of him. Yeah. So Dorothy, thank you again. Where can people find you and your newest book? Well, it's everywhere. It's wherever books are sold, as they say, it's out there now. Yesterday, uh, September 7th was the pub date. So it's out there and yeah. And I'm, I'm really excited that people are going to get to be able to read it. So thank you so much for all your good questions. Oh, thank you for answering them. Thank you for taking the time. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm a few chapters away from finishing and I know I'm going to enjoy the rest of it. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you were able to join us on this episode of Kitchen Confidant. Thank you again to Dorothy Callens for joining us today. If you loved Dorothy's wonderful storytelling today as much as I did, I know you will love The Kitchen Whispers and hope you get a chance to read it. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy cooking. Happy cooking.